Если кого-нибудь заденет, не кричи, а не метаться. Увидит, убьют. Потом, когда все стихнет, ползите назад, к составе. Утром подберут. Они нас не догонят. Да что вы. Они ее боятся, как огня. Кого? This is In The Cut, and hello, I'm Jesse. I am joined, as always, by Aaron. Hi, Aaron. Hello. Aaron's coming to us from deep in the woods in California. Uh, he has set up an elaborate mechanical electronic signal-boosting Rube Goldberg machine in order to join us, so I'm extremely happy to have him. Totally really worth happy. it. <laughs> and then joining us for the first time is uh, Yakov Grinberg, from We Have Such Films to Show You. And we are talking about the 1979 Russian film Stalker, directed by Andrei Tarkovsky. And I really am excited to get into it. Um, so thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. If you haven't listened to the podcast before, we delve pretty quickly into spoilers. The podcast works best if you have recently watched or rewatched the film. You can go to inthecut.org and see uh, links typically to places to watch it. I believe Stalker has gone into the public domain. Is that right? Because I know it's all over YouTube and several free ways of watching it. So I would very much recommend you. I mean, I don't know what movie this wouldn't go for, but like especially for this, I would very, very much recommend you watching it in like the highest caliber of it you can locate just because there are just so many like uh slow still moving shots where it's like really focused on the stuff in the shot and i watched it in two different fidelities i watched a a, a dvd rip maybe and then i watched the blu-ray rip and it was it was shockingly like different uh experience and just i i enjoyed it so much better uh watching it the second time I was wondering if there was a new transfer. I, I ended up watching it on uh, the DVD, and um, yeah, it, it shows that uh, it's, that was that was not a fantastic transfer, and it's a movie I would love to see, and you know, with a little more clarity. Yeah, I would love to love to see this on uh, the big screen too. Like this is one of those movies where, you know, like some movies I could give or take. I don't really care. And there's like a couple of movies that I just desperately want to see on a on a big screen. And this is now has entered one of them. Or has become one of them. Yeah, it would really work that way. It's it's one of these films that you it, it has these really really slow lingering shots and slow pans or slow holds that then eventually turn into pans, and you kind of just have to just sit there and inhabit the movie for a little bit at times. So imagining uh, seeing it on a gigantic towering screen just feels like ideal for sure. So. My history with Stalker is I saw it when I was a teenager and, and I, I was really blown away by it and it kind of sat with me for a long time. And it's a movie that I was really, I really, really loved the experience of watching and I really thought a ton about it afterward. But I didn't really go back to rewatch it ever, really. I, I may have seen it once again, maybe to show it to someone else who I thought might be equally impressed by it. But it's been uh, 10, between 10 and 20 years since I've seen the movie until now. Yeah, particularly in, you know, we grew up in a small town where, you know, the the video store had some things, but no, they, they didn't have a lot of Tarkovsky. And so, you know, to see these kind of things was to, you know, visit your weird friend in the city and do some dubbing. Yeah, that's I, I, I was going to mention right. the, um, the, 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 the first time I saw Eraserhead, it was from a VHS I bought on eBay for like $40 <laughs> that was had uh, David Lynch's like a couple of like David Lynch's short films and then a a uh, VHS recording of the Japanese laser disc of Eraser <laughs> like Japanese subtitles and like this this was the like the first time I'd seen it so yeah it, it was this was like a movie that was like obtained in that kind of exchange the experience of watching that movie almost seems like it'd be improved by having such an insane context for it yeah yeah absolutely i it, it definitely added to the mystique of the movie that i had to like get this 
VHS tape through the mail that was like almost unlabeled. I might have even mentioned this on the podcast before, but uh, Charles Bukowski had a great quote about the first time he ever turned on a television and he was looking at it and it, he found uh, Eraserhead being played on television <laughs> and he thought this invention is incredible. This is going to usher in a new era of like intelligence and cultural <laughs> literacy. And then after Eraserhead, he was clicking around and it's just like click, 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 nothing. Oh well. <laughs> Yeah, it's Eraser has an interesting point of comparison because that was the first movie that and I, I don't know how like this is going to be a lazy way of painting a bunch of unique and different movies with one kind of dumb broad brush. But among movies that it, it's hard to summarize a plot from themes are kind of multi-layered and, and go ongoing through the film sometimes try to achieve kind of a indescribable kind of philosophical concept in the movie. Uh, Eraserhead was the first that I really, really became enamored with, and it, and it colored my experiences of all the any any future film that I would kind of clump into that one big like half genre that I've described. Yeah, I th- I think like that that like one one of the other hallmarks of that kind of movie is that it's composed like more of a series of vignettes than it is like a cohesive story that goes from point A to you know point D. Yeah, I think it they they that that's like a point of comparison across the two of them that I think they both like really um, do a good job of just not holding your hand through like why scenes are intercut or why uh, some one thing follows another. Yeah, it's there's definitely like intentionality and deliberate you know editing going into them, but it doesn't serve the exact same purpose that like a more directly narrative story edit would be edited by someone you know trying to achieve that, and it's. Uh, it's a type of movie that I really, really, when it works, is among my favorite film-going experiences by far. And, and some of the more interesting and life-changing movies I've seen, I would kind of roughly categorize in that. But I also feel like they're harder to talk about, and I think they're harder to get on the operating table and pick apart what worked, what didn't, or why something worked or why something didn't, at least for me, because I feel like yeah. I don't have the same vocabulary for it or the same points of comparison for it that I might have for a more kind of traditional narrative film. Which I have avoided actually, you know, going and reading any kind of uh, anything about um, Stalker. I think after after this, I'm going to see what some other people's opinions are. Yeah, and, and something that you'll see when you do read reviews of stalker or solaris or lost highway or you know whatever whatever the movie may be is that people a lot of times bring their own interpretation of an allegory to it and make the case that that's the right interpretation of the movie as in terms of individual pieces of symbolism or overall running themes and a lot of times i find that really limiting because one of the things I love about it is being awash in the film and letting my mind kind of drift from one interpretation to the next and not trying to solve it like a puzzle, but kind of letting it be an emotional journey where I don't, I, I'm not able to see the whole film through one grid. Uh, I have to constantly shift my frame of reference or points of comparison or what one thing may represent in one scene may be different in the next or a next scene might make me revisit what something represented in the previous scene. And that's really hard to pin down both in a podcast like this, but also in a, you know, a, a written summary of why a movie might work like that might work. Yeah. I, 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 I did read, you know, go ahead and read, uh, read some stuff about it. And, um, you know, I found a pretty good essay that was like one of the most meandering essays I've ever read. <laughs> I was just like, and I, okay, this actually works because like a straight to the point, like, you know, essay about this movie would be, I'm sure there's dozens of them and I'm sure like they're super interesting, but I, uh, it was, it sort of fit the form ahead of the film. So ne- neither of you have, have read uh, Roadside Picnic, right? No, I have not. That's that's something I kind of wanted to get into, and but that's something I might just have to read about later. Is uh, you know how how it works as a an adaptation. Um, it seemed very different from the movie. It takes place in Canada. <laughs> 
I think, yeah, I think if I didn't know it was an adaptation, I wouldn't have got that. Yeah, I wonder, there's, so when you translate a film across, not necessarily languages, but culture, like, you you necessarily, like, lose a bunch of stuff. And, you know, any director that, that is that is directing for, like, the ages, as a, you know, like, something like this, like, directing, like, a piece of art, as opposed to, like, a, a film made strictly for, like, commercial purposes, um... The, you know you the, they would be aware of that you know they they would either put enough of you know they 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 use that it's just another thing you use the fact that you you lose this going across and i i it, it's i can't even say that i understand this aspect of like russian culture but like there is a um like a a admiration for the american adventure novel like for the adventure novel set in north america like uh you know the leather stocking tales and jack london and all that stuff and that it, it's very very much admired and like a lot of this film is you know at some point subtly and a lot and a you know at a bunch of points very explicitly pointing to that tradition of writing <laughs> But I, you know, like even like for me, the context of like what that means for this movie is totally lost, and I, I find that you know maddening, but also really fascinating that there's like an aspect to this movie that that will be you know might be lost to time or might be lost to context, but it's it's there for the taking if you know what you're looking for. Hmm. Any particular examples that you can think of from the movie that make that connection to that tradition? You know what? This is when we might find out we use different subtitles. Uh, <laughs> Chingan Chuk, the writer, keeps referring to the stalker as that, which is oh, the name yes. of like one of the characters. Which I which was completely lost on me. What was it? It's Chingan Chuk. Okay, is uh, was the name of the a character in like the Leather Stocking Tales. Okay. Including Last of the Mohicans, ah. and yeah, he was he was a Native American, and so yeah, so there's you know there's that thrown in, and then there's just like the fact that I just generally know that that kind of thing is popular, and the fact that you know apparently according to Wikipedia at least Stalker is taken from um, the Stocky and Co stories of Rudyard Kipling, who was another like adventure writer. Hmm. So yeah, so like this there's there's context to this that that relates to like the concept of adventure writing. I, I think even if you don't know the like the tropes necessarily you can you get some of that feeling of that because this is definitely like an adventure movie like that that is that's like the 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 arc of the movie is mostly like an adventure into a um you know a far off or like mythical place yeah it's like you i i probably more than you i have really limited knowledge of the book or story that it's based on um i do know that the brothers who wrote the screenplay for the film for tarkovsky are also the guys who wrote the book roadside picnic and i also know that roadside picnic had more sci-fi trappings than i think the film did yeah it, it seems that way in that the book it's it's really clear that there was an alien visitation in these different spots and that there's these uh you know insane quasi magical objects or areas that were left behind when they left yeah i mean like i i assume the book very much benefits from being a book and not like a movie made <laughs> in the soviet union in the 70s <laughs> as far as you know being able to represent the uncanny goes and yet i mean this movie's real fucking uncanny that was one of the big questions i was going to ask it, it, of both of you guys if you were able to give tarkovsky the means to put on screen whatever effects or kind of visual things he wanted do you think that that would have changed the movie a lot and i'm thinking not just of like kind of magical like alien artifact and things like that but even just the zone itself there's so much going on in terms of the zone is kind of always shifting and always kind of trying to throw you off or trap you. If that could have been more literally visualized on the screen in some way or another, A, do you think it would have added to or distracted from the movie? And B, do you think Tarkovsky would have been interested in that at all? Or is it more a part of the movie that you can never be entirely sure that the zone is anything out of the ordinary at all? I mean, I, I think that's where so much of the magic comes from is that he, he manages to you know conjure this sense of mystery or dread out of kind of out of thin air um you know just through you know framing and pacing and uh character reactions and and i think that just works works amazingly well to set set the mood and you know i, I think it probably was you know very intentional never to have a alien machine prop sitting poking out of the sure <laughs> 
intentional in the sense that that wasn't part of the vision or intense intentional in the sense that it couldn't have been done to the standard that would have made it you know not distractingly bad i i i would say the first i, I think i would too um i just it, it, it whenever whenever i think about like this kind of question like what would like a director from a time when like effects were for any reason unavailable or like you know like spectacular like hollywood effects whether it's cgi or even if it's just like really really advanced practical effects you know how it affected and i always think of just terry gilliam and like how i don't like his movies since they gave him cgi yeah. and he decided to you know do what it is that he does with cgi like that restraint on him of just like pure practical work was i think like so so important to like what we consider like good about a terry gilliam movie that i'd like i i I think taking away anything from this movie and like replacing it with something with more intentionality, you know, because because this is all shot on location. Um, you know, there there's a probably it was probably very little like prop work and stuff. I'm I'm sure they you know arranged stuff for for the shoot, but you know mostly it's just like the environment as, as it's found. And I think if you take away that. I can't imagine you would gain anything with the effects that you would that would equal that would equal it out. Um, but I think if you asked him, I don't know what he would personally say, considering like this movie killed a bunch of people. Many people on this shoot got like sick. A number died. Uh, they blame, or at least one place I read, you know, blames this shoot on like the whatever it was that eventually killed uh, Tarkovsky himself. That he that he picked it up here, and I mean because they they just they they went for real so they're like you know every time you see him in the in this movie like you know bouncing around in like a three inches of like disgusting filthy <laughs> water that is what you're seeing mm. that's you know like maybe they dressed it up a little bit but like that's a pool of water that's been sitting in like an unoccupied you know silo for god knows how many years since like that thing that they were shooting at was abandoned i think and when you watch it that's it feels unmistakable it's such a film about a place that if the place wasn't didn't feel real and didn't feel like almost like you were somewhere you shouldn't be not just in the, the characters in the movie are but you as the camera like feel like you shouldn't even be here or belong here or be allowed here even even like when they're driving the jeep on the tracks and it's like being pushed around by the tracks and it feels like there's like teetering on the edge of a disaster the entire time i don't and none of that seems like movie magic all of that seems like a set a, a shooting environment that was just teetering on the edge of actual physical catastrophe at every moment оставьте нельзя не надо не трогайте да не трогайте же вы да вы что спятили вы что я же говорил тут не место для прогулок зона требует к себе уважения иначе она карает карает только попробуйте еще раз что-нибудь такое у вас что языка нет я же просил нам туда да подняться войти и сразу налево только мы здесь не пойдем I I agree that I don't think that Tarkovsky would change how he approached the material in shooting it in in if he had the means to make it a little bit more surreal or supernatural on screen in in, in picture in camera. I don't know that he would or would want to uh, do that because I think that one of the things that makes it work is that at any moment you can have a little bit of a realization as you watch the movie that this could just be three guys who are under these pretenses that there is something going on here that actually isn't and that the entire thing is playing out in a, in a web of assumptions and, and expectations that comes completely from them and even in the universe of the movie it's literally just three guys walking around an area that, that everyone is too fearful to approach um, and I think that also is what makes the last scene shot in yes. the movie really punchy is that it's the first time anything on camera has been a little outside the boundaries of what we know to be physically real or possible that's that is probably my favorite shot in any movie ever hmm. 
Which one? I just, uh, just uh, with his daughter at the table in the you know final shot in the movie. Oh yeah. I, I just I, I can't even say what I love about it so much, but there's a, a couple there's a couple of shots in this movie that are just you know kind of pure magic to me. Yeah, and in a certain sense, you don't even have to gussy up this sets because, um, like Yakov was alluding to, it's it's like an incredible set. It's an incredible uh, place to be shooting. Everything is just gorgeous, and there's almost not a frame in the film that I wouldn't put in, on my wall um, in a in a poster size, you know, frame. Yeah, this watch there is really that's kind of what I was. I was just, you know, really getting into the, you know, composition. You know, the first 20 minutes before they get to the zone and, you know, everything. Just all these um, amazing geometric kind of angular shots and the way those are all um, framed. And it's just this wonderfully kind of oppressive, uh, claustrophobic feeling. Yeah, I think this movie really takes advantage of the fact that it's, um, what do you call it, full screen, 5x4? Yeah. Uh, rather than, you know, a, a, a wider resolution, just because it does, like, take advantage of of when it things need to feel cramped, they feel cramped. And mm-hmm. things frequently, you know, benefit from feeling cramped in this movie, the, the, the meat grinder, and, I mean, like, literally every, uh, you know, pre-color shot. Um, yeah. And then that that first shot in the zone where it's you know kind of the first time they break that feeling and it's literally uh, you know broken frames it's you know a, a kind of diagonal telephone poles and just this wonder wonderful feeling of just having broken out of the uh, that that oppressive city cityscape and uh, that that's another shot that's just you know absolutely magical without I can't can't cannot say why yeah there's a lot of moments like that in the movie that and 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 i think that that's like kind of the the high calling that the movie answers is to put things to you and show you and make you think things that are really hard to put to words and that's something that um art can do you know and and is incredible um I, I also think yeah that moment that moment was one of the ones that stick with you when they get um, into the zone and the and the movie turns to color and it's something that so easily could have felt like a gimmick um, you know obviously uh, the Wizard of Oz <laughs> made things color when they were in the magical land of Oz and stuff but what makes it work is that I'm so I'm so on board already and convinced that this is a See, I'm, I'm just going to sound like a 17-year-old douchebag trying to explain um, how clever I am for understanding the movie, which is not really the case. <laughs> well, that's what our podcast is. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but in the sense that if you can imagine the world from the point of view of the characters, before they enter the zone, they're seeing the world in color. But then when they enter the zone, they're almost seeing an entire layer or context or channels of the world that are beyond even that. So the way to represent uh, an interesting way of representing that on film hmm. is saying the jump from the sepia tone, you know, monochrome to color is like the experience of the characters going from what they would see as color in the beginning to this ultra like eye-opening broadened perspe- perception that they're experiencing in the zone. Yeah, it's it's it, it's like a flood into their senses um of, you know, whatever whatever sort just, you know, represented by like the the, the change in the in the color and the fidelity of the color and the variety of it um yeah and and they they just they find so many great spots to shoot in i love the 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 pipes that the tunnel underground t- uh, tunnel i love it's all the above ground stuff and the in the overgrown tanks and you know vehicles and um yeah he he gets like this one shot of um uh just telephone poles like lined up uh kind of like crosses on Golgotha is that is that where Jesus was crucified is that the name that, of the thing yeah I was, yeah. yeah so yeah like 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 just like that image of the crosses there and you know like I those poles were like that when he got there I I I'm willing to bet you uh so it's it's it was just like he's he finds these shots uh and, and he he brings them out and it, it's it's just like the, that amazing capability of of a you know a, a director and a cinematographer hmm. 
And then the when they get to the room, um, I think it's the grinder room that that has the kind of all the dirt bumps between the writer and the other two. Uh, am I, am the, I thinking the, the right room? I is think that? the grinder was the pipe. Yeah, I think the grinder is, is is the pipe that leads to the room with like all the little dudes. Okay. Yeah. So the room with the dunes, it's uh, it's such a visual. It's and I, I can't. I don't know if somehow they are able to find a room that somehow has, you know, dirt and earth laid out in this way, or if they've gone through the incredible effort of, of sculpting this room this way, but it's it's uh, among my favorite visuals in any movie. Yeah, that, that like I think that is one of the points in the movie where it gets, like, very strange. Out of, like, the just, like, strange and into just, like, a sort of, like, surreal landscape that stops resembling either like the rural area or the like industrialized areas you know that that's been like built into the rural area yeah it, it was just something you know quite different from both of those Зона — это очень сложная система ловушек, что ли. И все они смертельны. Не знаю, что здесь происходит в отсутствии человека. Но стоит тут появиться людям, как все здесь приходит в движение. Бывшие ловушки исчезают, появляются новые. Безопасные места становятся непроходимыми. И путь делается то простым и легким, то запутывается до невозможности. Это зона. One thing that that crosses my mind watching this movie is, you know, having been born and raised in America with just all the same cultural touch points that every other kid in America kind of just gets to assume is what it would be like to watch Stalker in Russia when it was a new film. And Yakov, you were born in Russia and lived there until you were six. Is that right? Yep. Did you ever see a movie in the theater while you were there? Oh, you know what? I remember being in a theater briefly. I def we definitely weren't there for like the length of the film, so I, I don't know if it was like I, I remember being with my grandfather and I feel like he thought he could take me to a movie and it turned out that he couldn't. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, so yeah, but there, I, I watched a lot of television. Because the film you know, he, he couldn't take could. you because the film wasn't appropriate for your age. No, because I was like a disruptive small child, oh. and yeah, I, I I have to imagine he just like had to take me out of there because I was ruining the movie for everybody else. And on television, did you see films? Did, did you see Russian films, American films? Uh, you know what? I really very barely remember what I've seen except for cartoons, huh. um, because we had, this was, you know, we left in 1991. One. So, like, this is 89, 90, we started getting American cartoons. Uh, so, we had DuckTales, we had Chippendales Rescue Rangers, mm-hmm. and we had Muppet Babies. <laughs> and then, just like a plethora of Russian cartoons and like children's entertainment. Um, and that's that. That's mostly what I watched. Like, I don't remember. I don't remember watching like a lot of like narrative stuff as as a kid. Like. Like you know, like a like an actual film, unless it was, you know, I definitely remember like watching an adaptation of Last of the Mohicans, um, and I might have seen the whole thing. Hmm. I don't know an adaptation of it. Well, a film adaptation of it, that like oh, a Russian huh. adaptation of Last of the Mohicans, like made in Russia. Huh. Yeah, and, and and apologies if, if there's like uh, if this <laughs> just not stuff that you remember that yeah. super well, but it's stuff I'm super fascinated by. Yeah, I kind of I, I regret like my mom, um, my, both my parents are dead, um, but like I uh, my mom, I knew she was like fond of this movie, and I'm just like I kind of regret not watching it with her because like Russian arts culture is like very very what is it? It's high context. 
mm-hmm. there's a lot of like cultural references in it like just embedded in it in a way that isn't like winking but just like just assumes you know Shakespeare or or the or the, or the Bible or or something like that and she could very much pick up on that stuff in a movie hmm. you know she I remember one time she had gone to see a uh, Russian Ark uh, it was that's like it's uh, I think that movie the whole movie is just a single take going through the uh, Hermitage yeah, yeah. Uh, in in St. Petersburg which is where I'm from and I've been there and just stuff happens and I, I don't recall what and she was just like apparently like a lot of the stuff was referential to like political minutia in Russia in the 70s and she's <laughs> like I don't know how anybody in that theater pick was picking up on that and I'm like I don't think they were I think like that was you know like you know, like I said with this movie, it, it was just like, it's there for the taking if you want it, but you need to know what's going on. Um, so I feel like my mom could have told me some real useful stuff about this movie for this podcast. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's it's unmistakable in that, you know, it's it's not a the movie that would have come out of Hollywood in 1979. <laughs> they, 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 they remade Solaris in America, right? They did with George Clooney. Yeah, yeah, and it's not as bad as that makes it sound. Honestly, I, I mean, it does. I don't <laughs> think it's good as good actor. as the original. I, I think he's a good actor. Yeah, um, but you think you would think a Hollywood, you know, star vehicle version of Solaris wouldn't be a good movie, <laughs> regardless of how good the actor was. But I remember liking it. I saw it in the theater and then never again. But uh, I remember going in prepared to hate it because I was a big fan of Tarkovsky's and not hating it as much as I thought I would. So that's yeah. I think it did a really good job getting, you know, that sense of uh, alienness of aliens, which hmm. at least you know the Russian science fiction I've read that's been a big something that's that's been done that I don't think I've ever seen in them or seen done as well in american science fiction hmm. um and the, you know that was in roadside picnic that was also you know the i mean that the real unknowableness of of what had happened and of what what the aliens were and what anything was it was you know um i think i you know it's uh cosmic horror without quite the horror element hmm. But in that aliens aren't just, you know, different weird humans or yeah, just like different weird animals. New kinds of foreheads. They're actually something that's so outside of our what our concept of what life and society would be that they are unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, which is something that's very hard to do on film. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think both versions of Solaris did a, did a pretty good job uh, in different ways. Yeah, I think either one is worth a rewatch. Um, okay, last last question about um, a, a Russian childhood. Uh, <laughs> um, if you wanted to watch a movie, was it was it like a go down to the video store on the corner type of situation? Or no, um, my grandmother had a VCR, and this thing was like a rare item, huh. and VHS tapes were like very rare things to encounter. Um, yeah, I guess you you saw a movie on the TV or you saw a movie at the movies, but that that was it. You know, I find like a lot of stuff that I explain about like growing up in Russia always feels like the kind of stuff that people who had parents who were raised in the depression, you know, tell me. Hmm. It was just like it's like, oh yeah, you know, like mom used to darn all our socks instead of just getting new socks. It was it was stuff like that, although I don't think my mother ever darned socks. <laughs> But yeah, it was just like, just imagine everything, like, the just the level of, like, consumer everything, like, 20 years in the past, and that was like, like, the rush I grew up in was essentially the 70s. Because, <laughs> yeah, like, I, when I came to America, it was just, like, the amount of, it, it was like coming to the future, it was just absolutely, like, just coming to the future and seeing all of this futuristic <laughs> technology. Um I grew up way outside of my small town and, you know, power was a sometimes have it, sometimes don't have it thing. And we definitely didn't have a TV or VCR when I was real young. We eventually got a TV and a VCR at the same time because I was so far outside town that a TV was useless without a VCR. (laughs) So, but yeah, I was, I was still a kid, but I I didn't, I hadn't always assumed the presence of a TV or a VCR in my house, but I also, TVs and VCRs were ubiquitous and they were woven into the culture in a big way. So I I just was curious if if it was similar for you. I mean, like if I went to a sleepover at someone's house from my school, you guaranteed they would play, you know, we would watch Back to the Future or a couple movies or something. Oh, you know what we did have, and my grandfather did have, was a 
film projector, a small one that played reel-to-reel films, and he just projected them onto a bedsheet. I think those might have been more common, mm. but I, I, I don't know about the the exchange methods of like the media for it. But yeah, those would have been much, much more common than VCRs. Mm. That's cool to me. Another thing, and possibly the last thing to talk about with it, is kind of what what you can take away from it in terms of the story, in terms of the theme, and in terms of kind of the journey you go on while you're watching the movie. And my suspicion with this movie that I haven't actually talked to many people about, but that held a special place in my heart for so long, is that people get very different things from the movie when they watch it. And I know even even me over the course of the movie, I'm seeing it in two or three different ways and kind of shifting perspectives on it at that. So it might make it harder to talk about the themes of the movie or the, you know, wh- what it's getting at or what the point is or who, who it's for or, or even really know if you have <laughs> taken its point or missed its point. But I, I mean, I know that my experience with it is is striking and I can go into this movie and see a story of a, a man of faith trying to convince both kind of an aspect of creativity and an aspect of um, scientific analysis in his own mind of an idea that he's having trouble getting at or arriving at and that his frustration near the end of the movie in that it doesn't seem to have connected or resonated with the people he was bringing to it or his frustrations with those parts of himself that he can't convince to fall into this indescribable uh, illumination he's felt from this place and this revelation and this spot is i mean is that at all what you guys are taking away when you watch it in in that sense um i really i or at least on this watch through really did not strongly engage with it as a story i was you know really i even i think at some points just started ignoring the subtitles and just finding that the subtitles were you know drawing away from the experience of just Hmm kind of lo- losing yourself in the visuals and I kind of actually want to do another watch through just without the subtitles but uh, yes so much of the narrative I feel like I just do not have the context but the uh, yeah the, I mean I, I do feel like that that emotional moment where you know he's ex- explaining why 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 this is important to him and trying trying to get that across that's uh, yeah uh, I don't know that yeah, and that can be the story of an artist trying to trying to communicate his art, um, or a story of someone trying to just realize an aspect of themselves. Or and not to say that there's a, any read on this movie that like makes the pieces snap into place, and the movie is a straight strict allegory for that. <laughs> but that that that's one of the journeys I go on when I watch the movie. It's it's also in some ways uh, in the same way that. Oh, what's the name of that one-act play where the three people are realize that they are basically in Hell's Waiting Room? No Exit? No Exit, thank you. It's interesting in the same way that No Exit is, in that the setting is almost just like a stage and set dressing for these conversations to play out, and for these characters and personalities and motives within motives, secret even to the person holding the motive in some cases, uh, can slowly kind of come to light. And I think that, in that sense, it almost fits with what you were saying, Yakov, in that it's vignettes. And, you know, the movie would work if certain scenes were, you know, in opposite order or something like that, because they can kind of stand on their own as little explorations of an idea or two characters kind of getting under the skin of the other and exposing aspects of the other and bringing new ideas to light that way. And not not as part of a larger narrative framework, but just as individual explorations of that stuff. Yeah, I I, th- I think just as far as this this film did like two interesting things as far as like knowing that it would be 
encountered as like an art object and a text and and one of them was to just like put the right you know one of the characters is is a writer and so with that comes like a lot of criticisms about like the limitations of writing and you know i it, it in a way stands in for just the limitations of any kind of creative effort um and and then just the I guess not personification, but I were, you know, in a way, yeah, of just like the, the sense of dread and the sense of having to always go around or take the long way around, never be able to just like get something and grab something directly and, and, and have it, but always having to go around like even then at peril um, until you like slowly finally get to like the thing. And then like the writer had said, you know, the process of digging it up changes it, and and by the time you've got it dug up, it's something very different than what you were looking for, and then it came up, um, and just not being disappointed in that is, I think, where the hope in this movie comes from, because I think um, hope is, you know, like the, it's it's an underlying like uh, facet of the movie, or hope 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 or hopelessness, you know, the 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 conspicuous absence of hope. And um, yeah, I, I and I, I, I think that's both things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and I, I think the conversation you're talking about, where the writer is talking to the physicist about, it must be nice that when you arrive at a conclusion, it's it fits the framework that you've created to arrive at that conclusion in a certain sense. Then that when I arrive at, you know, when I unearth something, it's changed so much by the process of my unearthing it that it's almost unrecognizable and bears no relation to what it was before I got there. Um, I think that that conversation taking place right, basically right before they set out to get into the zone and have this experience is really really well placed and deliberately placed uh in that sense because i think it really helps you give you a framework for the movie philosophical conversations in movies are often just like fall so flat for me um unless they're like in the context of like a waking life type movie where that's just the entire movie and you, you take that and that's the movie but yeah like you know this movie had just extended philosophical conversations and you know a direct addressing of the camera and none of it came off as you know like forced or or hokey or anything like that it was you know the fact that you are now being talked to was just another one of these strange alienating things about this film hmm. Absolutely. And I think that there's there, I think there's so much to learn from what, you know, what is being said and, and what's happening and what's playing out um, in those conversations that movies rarely can do, can boil down so much into uh, conversations like that and have them be so like rich and layered and worth, exp you know, deeper exploration. But it's, I almost like didn't want to write down quotes or snippets and, and try and pull them apart and see what m about them resonated with me because it felt like the experience of them resonating with me was so personal and not something that it would be useful to explain to a listener or, you know, a co-host what that was because it would be, it would take the, uh, that away from them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Девятую лабораторию, пожалуйста. Одну минутку. Слушаю. Надеюсь, не помешал? Что тебе надо? Всего несколько слов. Вы спрятали, я нашел. Старое здание, четвертый бункер. Ты меня слышишь? Я немедленно сообщаю в корпус безопасности. Можешь. Можешь сообщать, можешь писать на меня свои доносы, можешь отравливать на меня моих сотрудников, только поздно. Я ведь в двух шагах от того самого места. Um, yeah, God, speaking of long shots, holy shit, there were some long shots. I really, really loved how long these shots were. They just went on and on and on and on. Single takes. Yeah. I love that. I'm such mm -hmm. a sucker for it. 
Um, he, I think at one point he intended this movie to be like, or at least to appear to be a single take, but I, he definitely, you know, gave up on that, but <laughs> on the macro scale, but definitely not on the micro scale. Yeah. And, you know, you have to capture these incredible performances and everything just has to go right. And, and, uh, it casts it. It casts such a different tone on the movie if it's not hopping around or cross cutting between people having a conversation, or it takes its yeah. time, pan or starts as a still and then turns into a pan without a cut. Um, it's yeah, it worked really, really well. And when they do cut, it's often in a way that's unsettling. A lot of times, I noticed there would be a long shot where nothing happened, and then the moment something happened, it would cut away from it. Like, there's yeah, a, I, a scene where Ryder is going down the tunnel, the grinder, and he's just walking and walking and walking, and it's a minutes-long shot, and then he starts to stumble, and you don't even see the stumble because it cuts away as it happens. Yeah, you're you're definitely, like, disoriented uh, from noticing the kind of things that you've trained yourself to notice in film generally. Mm-hmm. Um, I also love the, uh, the, the difference in uh, editing between, uh, between in the zone and out of the zone. Um, I mean, you still had some wonderful long shots out, but there was, you know, you know, the driving scenes and stuff. There was, you know, very frequent jumpy editing. Yeah, and a ton of shot reverse shot in that, too, because they're kind of like going through a a labyrinth to get out of it. And it's a lot of times you're kind of seeing what they see and then seeing the front of the car from the opposite perspective and stuff. But yeah, that entirely ends once they're in the zone. That's a good observation. Yeah, I think that's I, I really love how well they they built you know the the sense and the texture of of the early movie and just such such a sense of relief in that first wonderful shot in the zone i I think there's that's something i felt this early there's definitely like a sense of the uncanny in it because we see something that we don't see in american cinema or like you know, um, Western cinema a lot, which is like a, a rural area that has been like rapidly industrialized in a way that isn't like, wasn't like a natural, um, you know, it wasn't like city sprawl or anything, but like, you know, a area chosen to be industrialized and like the machinery put down there. And, and I think that's sort of like reflective of the idea of the zone of where like something rotated into this dimension basically and left behind um some you know some strange and deadly things which is exactly what happened here which which was you know there was uh the the most of the movie was shot in um estonia i believe at the at the site of a uh, hydroelectric plant uh that was decommissioned so all the crap you see in there like you know all the pollution and stuff that's you know stuff that killed real people uh because it was toxic because of like this rapid and you know poorly maintained industrialization of the area. Hmm. Well, something that popped to my mind and kind of inappropriately because the the timeline isn't right for this, but the zone and the Chernobyl site yeah, was a um, comparison that was hard not to make, even though Chernobyl happened after the stalker was released. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guarantee you that, you know, this is like among people that work there, this is, or, you know, that, that had to work on the project. This was like at the forefront of a lot of minds because it was, a pretty recent movie and you know it was prob you know a big deal by a big deal director so that there's no way that was lost on anybody going hmm. in there which is which is just striking it's one of those like william gibson inventing the internet thing yeah have either of you played uh there was a video game maybe maybe about 10 years old that was there's there's stalker. three of them and i have not played any of them but those were you know set at i believe you know set at the uh chernobyl or around Sort of, sort of taking, you know, I think basing based it a little bit around uh, Red Side Picnic. Земные, 
и вельможи, и богатые, и тысяченачальники, и сильные, и всякие свободные скрылись в пещеры и в ущелье гор. И говорят горам и камням, падите на нас, и скройте нас от лица сидящего на престоле и от гнева Агнца, ибо пришел великий день гнева его, и кто сможет There's one other thing too, and uh, and and I'm not sure that I'm qualified to talk about this or anything I've talked about so far. <laughs> But uh, w one thing that seems to be going on as well is that the movie doesn't shy away from religious imagery, both kind of Im implicit, like Yakov was talking about with the uh, the telephone poles and stuff, and also explicit, like you know when when the camera pans across a religious painting underwater. And one way of coming at this movie would be to have the stalker be someone who is looking for a faith that's being denied to him kind of institutionally or, or, or rejected by his environment, and that he's trying to look for that kind of that Christian, you know, originalism, and that he, part of his kind of disheartening is uh, that he can't hold on to it. Does that does that jive with kind of the cultural spot um, that this movie is in? So here's the thing: he represents a religious archetype called a holy fool, which you don't it it it's a concept that doesn't really make it outside of Russia, like you know Russian or uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, you know, I think like Saint Francis of Assisi would be you know like, like a a crazy guy that was crazy for jesus and like was able to you know get away with all sorts of things um you know saint basil do you, you know the, the saint basil's cathedral um in russia it's like the big one with the onion domes it's like the most resplendent one who's mm -hmm. named after this guy who would just wander it was saint basil and he was he was a holy fool and he would just wander around he was able to say anything he wanted to the czar you know he he would chide him for shit and you know he was he was He was not, he was fed, you know, he was, he didn't take clothes, but he was, uh, when he died, the czar was one of the pallbearers. This is like the level with, with of reverence, which with this crazy person was treated because their, their, you know, mental illness sort of coincided with their like religious fervor and really meant something at religious level. And this character, and his character is supposed to be a a holy fool um of that sort and he's like explicitly referred to as that uh at, at least once and you know the life you, you just the, the the torturous life that his like wife leads being like the wife of this holy fool and she was like she knew what she was going into and it's still you know it's horrible but there's like this hope in it because of him and because of like the messed up way that he thinks compared to everybody else and Whether like having hope in like an area like that, a a a real hope in in this you know like post-apocalyptic you know environment, would you need to be mentally ill to have that hope? Hmm. Would like is that would would that be the manifestation of of mental illness in a place without hope? Um, so that's that that that's my take on it. Which in, in the yeah that that's that's my take. Hmm. That's really fascinating. Because it, 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 it could be either that that concept is kind of a vehicle for uh, explaining his fervor towards this unknowable, indescribable thing that he sees and finds and understands, or that the unknowable, unseeable, indescribable thing itself is just a, a literal, you know, metaphor for that religious fervor that he would put words to if he had them. Yeah, that's the thing. In this in the movie he doesn't have religious fervor, but he definitely has like a fervor that like, you know, throws his moods and makes him do weird things like roll around in the grass, which the movie makes weird even though it's such like a normal thing to do like he goes into like the tall grass and he lays there weird and he there's bugs crawling on him and and yeah so like there's there's a fervorishness to him 
Yeah, and 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 it's so it, it resonates too because he he's coming from you haven't seen him as anything except a beaten a downtrodden man up until the point where he's in the zone, and then he basically says like I I have to take you guys stay here I'm just gonna like go and be in this place for a minute and he just is such a renewal for him kind of spiritually. There's a shot um, during one of like I think it's like during the first time he goes to lay down. There's a shot that matches almost exactly the shot that they cut from his wife where she's just like thrown herself on the floor and is just like writhing in, hmm. in, in, in pain and agony and screaming. And it just sort of zooms in on her, uh, like her upper body. And like, he's framed in the exact same way, uh, hmm. when he's, when he's in the, uh, in the grass in one shot what that means is you know i i'm not <laughs> well in some sense it's yeah. it's at her expense that he has these experiences so yeah it's yeah, yeah the downside and upside of this rift between them huh. <laughs> Она прячется, а вы ее всюду ищете, то здесь копнете, то там. В одном месте копнули, ага, ядро состоит из протонов. В другом копнули, красота. Треугольник А, Б, С равен треугольнику А прим, Б прим, С прим. А вот у меня другое дело. Я эту самую истину выкапываю, а в это время с ней что-то такое делается, что выкапывал-то я истину. А выкопал кучу, извините, is there anything you guys feel like didn't work in the movie? I mean, you know, who the fuck are we to, you know, criticize this, like, legendary Tarkovsky film that's, you know, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever, but... There was one action scene in the film which I felt did not work at all as an action scene. Which one? Uh, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, are you talking when they were, like, wrestling for the, uh, for the bomb? Uh, no, actually, when they were driving through the checkpoint. Oh, yeah. And get, get shot at, and you, you know, you have absolutely no sense of who's who's who can see what or what 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 is even going on in a way that you know. I I don't know if it's intentional. I don't know if they just had a half an hour to shoot get that. <laughs> they they very 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 intentionally left vague what the government was like. The government situation mm-hmm. was who they were occupied by because this does not take this doesn't take place in russia it 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 definitely it explicitly takes place in like one of the small orbiting countries around russia they they don't specify which one it is but that's like you know they they went to like tajikistan and they went to estonia that's where they went to go shoot this movie in these outlying areas and i mean i think some of it was shot in moscow like the last scene but um yeah like it it, it it's very vague about what exactly is going on like politically and socially which i guess makes the zone sort of like a more comforting area for us as well because like everybody's you know not everybody but like the people who have been in like a like a woodsy area like that are are, are familiar like more familiar with that than they are with um you know as i say that i i'm thinking now that the people are I would say that they were more familiar with that, but you know, the people that are watching it have also probably definitely been familiar <laughs> with police garrisons and shit. It's, huh. um, but you know, there would be def- he would definitely be making this for audience who was not as as closely familiar with that because he was, you know, he was an international filmmaker. He was a, part of the international filmmaking community, so he's he's making this for people in in, in France and Sweden and America. So it, it it's hard to say what parts are supposed to alienate whom and like. <laughs> your own context brings a lot to this movie which is a large large point of the movie Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and as a as a nitpick um i think i I agree with aaron that the that there's moments in the as they're escaping the gunfire that are that just don't seem like they're planned in the way that you kind of have to plan an action scene if you want it to be cohesive that, that they're just kind of like built in the editing room in a certain way but I also thought that a lot of the Foley work, and especially near the beginning, was distracting where it just sounded like someone pushing a button on a sound effects yeah. board. And As far as I'm aware, and not that it makes the experience of watching better, but all of the disconcerting Foley work was intentional. Hmm. That doesn't make it any easier to watch, and I definitely agree that there's times when... Like, that's definitely a thing that I thought, like, maybe I'm 
misinterpreting but didn't work like there was one really really clear moment when the they're like you know their dinky little car stops and it like skids like it's a fucking race car <laughs> right the car has um, stopped moving and the skid sound is still playing yeah yeah but i was reading about like a bunch of the sound design and y- you know what maybe it is it maybe people are reading intentionality into it that <laughs> it didn't have maybe Maybe not, but yeah, that's definitely something that stands out. It did seem to get a lot less distracting once they were in the zone, and it's not that there wasn't still like intense, like splashy foley work and things that that just didn't seem diegetic. That seemed like added on jarringly, but nowhere near as much once they were kind of out of the city and into the zone. So I, I, I could, I could uh, hear an argument that it was deliberate for sure. Yeah, I mean, like one of the one of the hints, or not not like the hints, but one of the things that like points to the deliberateness of the alienating sound effects is the music. Like the few times the music plays when the train is coming by, where there's no like real rational explanation <laughs> for why there would be music playing, but the music is definitely meant to be somehow diegetic because it fades with the train track fades it never appears clearly and cleanly over the sound like the actual soundtrack does Hmm. but it's there and you know we need to make some sense of it and 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 i think like a lot of the other parts of like sound design in this movie is meant to be taken in some way where like yes this thing that you're looking at didn't make the kind of sense you expected it to but it's there. Hmm. So now what? And like that's that's where conversations about the movie begin. Um, yeah, it is. This is not an easy one to do. Do the casual chat. With. It, yeah, this movie sort of defies you to talk about it coherently. It 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 poses a challenge, and I you know you 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 don't necessarily live up to like the challenge that it poses in trying to you know take it apart and talk about it in a way um, that doesn't feel like you're losing everything sure. about it in the, in the conversation sure yes this movie felt very good yeah <laughs> yeah it was it was pretty and it felt nice yeah <laughs> yeah i i've i i've come to realizations where i was trying to like explain a great photograph or a great painting to someone and and i and i realized if i could if i could put it into words then you wouldn't need the painting or you wouldn't <laughs> need the photograph and Stalker feels like that about movies. If 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 it could be summarized, then you wouldn't need to be a two and a half hour long movie. <laughs> um, but I'm glad it is. Yeah, like I, I can tell you what was in the movie and and what happened in it, but that I I think you lose everything in that. Like in a movie like this, especially, and you know, not every movie can you lose everything. You know, do you lose everything in that? But in this one, you you absolutely do. Right. Um, yeah, I think. I mean, this film was more just had more, more magic in it. More just you know that yeah. indescribable something um, that. Yep. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that the movie achieves something that's so hard to achieve that it, it, it makes me disinclined to criticize any aspect of it because what would i change if you know you handed the keys to this film to me uh you know hopefully nothing because it's it uh it it aims really really high and and hits its mark i think um it's a pretty high calling for a piece of art to express the indescribable and i think stalker um does it as well as any film i've ever seen in my life so it's uh it's very it's a very special film uh to me it's rarely that I watch like a. I don't want to call this an art film because it's not an art film. It it was a a wide release quasi science fiction film. Um, not usually the kind of thing you just pop in the VCR though. Yeah, when do you watch this movie again? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you're a teenager, it's when you're trying to impress a girl, basically. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah that's absolutely. Probably half my watches have been. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm a very smart man. Let's watch. God, oh, you haven't seen Stalker? Oh my God, <laughs> you have to see it. It's so brilliant. There was, um, I was I was dating somebody, um, and we were in a video store. This was like ten years ago. Uh, girl, I was dating, and I was just like, "Hey, have you seen Primer?" She's just like, literally, every guy who wanted to have, like um, <laughs> express to me how smart they were made me watch that movie. <laughs> oh, it is that kind of movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. 
<laughs> poor the poor movie though. It's not the movie's yeah. fault. <laughs> no, it's not at all. <laughs> well, I really, really appreciate your time and the and the work it's yeah, taken. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me this. on. I, I love being on podcasts. Yeah, well, I'm. Uh, I want to hear more from you too. So, so get to work, Yakov. Yeah, we gotta. I I don't think we're on hiatus. I think we just haven't had an episode. <laughs> we never like. We neither of us was ever like. All right, so we're pausing this for a while. So now it's just sort of in limbo. Which honestly, I prefer it. Sure. Um, we wouldn't know how that was. Where should people look for you, Yakov? Do you want people to listen to uh, one of my favorite podcasts? We have such films to yeah, show yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have such films to show you, the archives of which are full of wonderful episodes. And if, if you put it on your podcast thing, a new episode might pop up in the future, um, eventually. Uh, and I'm on Twitter as Griff, uh, G-R-I-P-H, Griffiths on Metafilter. I think those are all my internet locations tumblr griffiths.tumblr.com i don't use that as much as i should same thing on instagram if you want to see photos of me in shorts <laughs> um, you'll enjoy you'll i i can swear to you the listener you'll enjoy uh yakov wherever you may find him as griffiths and for different reasons i follow your tumblr purely for like this like kind of retro futuristic laser at like aesthetic that you've you're so so like got nailed down i made one um, specifically for that but i don't update it anymore. and uh I've, i i i follow your comments on metafilter because i like seeing you take down wing nuts <laughs> <laughs> It's uh, you're just a you're a a cornucopia of delights. (laughs) Thank you. It's the nicest thing everybody said. (laughs) 